And once again, let me welcome you uh, to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, glad you're here. You're our guest, and um, welcome. Uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know, uh, as we've been making our way through the book of Exodus, that the journey so far for Israel through the wilderness and towards the promised land, it's not been smooth sailing. Um, it has not been a walk in the park, has it, ever since they've gotten through the Red Sea. They're not in Egypt anymore, but they're not in the promised land either. They're somewhere in between, right, in the wilderness. They've been saved, and they are being saved. In other words, they're, they're living in the tension between the already and the not yet. Their salvation is accomplished, and it's not yet complete. Their exodus has both already happened, and it is still happening. And what we're seeing so far is that in this tension between the already and the not yet, there are strong forces at work in Israel's life that threaten, that threaten their arrival to the promised land. They live and they travel in the midst of clear and present danger that threatens God's people as they travel home to the, to the land that God has promised to them. But so far, what has threatened them this clear and present danger, it's been internal, right? It's been inside of them. It's been their own hearts, their own lack of faith and unbelief. So far in the last few weeks, they're 0 for 3. I mean, their batting average is a big fat zero when it comes to engaging trial and believing that God is enough in the midst of the trial. They've been hungry once and thirsty twice, and all three times they've complained and grumbled and responded with just plain old ugly unbelief. So far, the forces at work in Israel's life as they travel through the wilderness that threaten their arrival to the promised land, those forces have been internal, their own stubborn and rebellious hearts. But this morning, they're going to discover that there are other strong forces at work in the world that are outside of them that want to keep them from making any progress towards the promised land. The clear and present danger that they encounter this morning is not just inside of them, it's, it's outside, it's external to them. And what that means is that we have so much to learn from them this morning because their situation then is so similar to our situation now. Because just like Israel, we are traveling through the wilderness that is, that is life on this side of heaven. And as Christians, we journey in this tension between the already and the not yet. We have been saved, and we are being saved. God's kingdom has come, and every week in the Lord's Prayer, we still pray, Thy kingdom come. Just like Israel, we are threatened as we journey by danger that is both inside of us and outside of us. We travel towards heaven in the clear and present danger of what threatens us, strong forces that threaten us from inside, our own stubborn and rebellious hearts that are so prone to wander, and we travel in the midst of clear and present danger that is external to us, that's outside. And this morning, that means that even as we gather this morning in beautiful, charming downtown Franklin, Tennessee, that there are dark, dangerous forces at work outside of you that want nothing more than to keep you from making any progress towards heaven. 
and that want nothing more than to keep you from making any progress, from looking like the king of heaven, being conformed more and more into his image. So how does God want to meet us here in his word to encourage us with the gospel and to equip us to keep pressing on in the wilderness, in the warfare, as we make our way towards heaven? Um, How does he want to, to encourage us with the gospel in the midst of the clear and present danger that's both inside of us and outside of us as we journey towards heaven. Let's read and find out. This is God's Word, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight against the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit now to open our ears and open our eyes to help us see Jesus so that we may be encouraged and equipped to keep following you in the wilderness uh, that we travel in today. This life on this side of heaven as we As we journey through the wilderness towards heaven, Lord, would you give us a glimpse of the glories of Christ that would encourage us and put steel in our backbones and that would prepare us to keep following you, to keep struggling as we follow you on the way to heaven. In your name we pray, amen. So in our passage this morning, we find Israel at war again. We find them on the battlefield again against an enemy that doesn't want them to make any progress towards the promised land. Now, you might hear me say that and think, again, what do you mean again? I think this is the first time that Israel has fought against an, an army uh, ever since crossing the Red Sea. Did I miss something? Did I miss a fight uh, in the last few chapters of Exodus? Well, no, I say again on purpose because in a very real way, Israel has been on the battlefield for the last three weeks, ever since they crossed the Red Sea and entered into the, into the wilderness. They've been fighting an enemy this whole time that seriously threatens their journey towards the promised land, but the enemy so far that they've been facing is internal to them. It's their own sinful hearts, their own rebellion, their own flesh, their own unbelief. The battlefield so far has been internal. This morning we see Israel, though, fighting against a different kind of, against a different kind of enemy and on a different kind of battlefield. They discover that there are not only forces inside of them, but there are strong forces outside of them that stand opposed to God and that stand opposed to God's people. 
forces arrayed against them that are desperately committed to keeping them out of the promised land. They discover this morning that journeying in the wilderness towards the promised land means living in the tension between the already and the not yet, and it means being engaged in warfare. Being in the wilderness means being at war. And so the three things I want you to see this morning, how we're going to open this passage up, I want you to see, first of all, who we engage in the war, and then secondly, how we engage in the war, and then third and finally, who will end the war. So first of all, who do we engage in the war? Well, verse 8 tells us, it starts off, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This means that Israel is still camped out where we left them last week, if you were here last week. Uh, they're still camped out in the place where God climbed up on that rock, you remember, and Moses struck the rock, striking, in a sense, God instead of the people, judging God instead of the people, and, um, and water flowed from the rock to, to meet their needs and to feed their thirst, you remember. They're still there, still at Rephidim, drinking water still from that rock that Moses struck. And we don't know, we don't know if it was later that day, Maybe it was a few hours later, maybe it was um, two or three days later or a week later, we don't know, but at some point, some Israelite looked up in the distance and saw a dust cloud out in the distance and thought, well, maybe that's just a dust storm, and then a few more of them noticed it, and it was getting closer and closer. Finally, all of them could see it, and they could see this is no dust storm. (laughs) Those are people. And that's an army, and they could see the glint of sunlight hitting off of of swords and spears in the distance as this army made their way towards them in the wilderness. It's the Amalekites. And it's the first time that Israel has engaged them, but it won't be the last. Now, a little bit about the Amalekites. Um, They're a nomadic tribe that traces their lineage back to Esau, back to Jacob's brother, So in a sense, they are long, long, long lost descendants of the Israelites. They're a nomadic tribe that occupies this southern part of Canaan with a lot of other, you know, scary and bloodthirsty ites back then. Um, The Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites. They are one of those ites that occupies Canaan that will be a thorn in the side of Israel for years to come. And evidently, the Amalekites did not take too well to Israel's presence in this part of the country. They're like a gang, and they feel like their territory is being encroached on by another gang. Some other gang has come into their neighborhood, and they feel threatened. Maybe they think that Israel is threatening their food sources or their water supplies or whatever, and so the Amalekites attack. And our passage doesn't tell us many details about how they attack, but, but the book of Deuteronomy does, and let's just say that God isn't impressed. <laughs> And he wants Israel to remember. Because in Deuteronomy 25, God says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And he cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind. Who knows? This might have been just a few hours or days after they start to drink water out of this rock. But because... The author of Deuteronomy tells us that the people are still faint and weary. Maybe there are some that haven't made their way up to the water supply yet. And the Amalekites go after them. It's a real low blow. It's a real cheap shot because 
The author of Deuteronomy tells us that the Amalekites started to attack the stragglers and the, the people that were vulnerable, the people that were lagging behind and couldn't keep up with the rest of the people. The Amalekites are deeply committed to keeping Israel out of the promised land. It's not big enough for the two of them. They're not interested in a treaty. They're not interested in a peace deal. They're not interested in coming to terms with the Israelites. They don't want to know anything about Israel or, any, or Israel's God. They're only interested in wiping them off the map and making sure that they don't get any closer to the promised land. Now, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. Um, the good news is that we're like 4,000 years past this episode in redemptive history, and we aren't fighting against the Amalekites anymore. Like, we haven't thought about them for a long time, right? Um, we don't worry too much about the Amalekites or any of the other bloodthirsty, scary, child-sacrificing ites that God's people had to push out of Canaan at that time. That's the good news. But the bad news is that we're still at war and that, we, that you and I still have an enemy that is deeply committed to keeping you out of the promised land. And the bad news is that he's much worse than the Amalekites. He hates God and he hates you with a perfect and pure hatred. He is evil and restless and malicious. He delights in pain and suffering and sadness and wickedness. He loves to destroy and tear apart and devour. And he's incredibly smart. He's incredibly patient. And he's ruthless and deceptive and hopelessly evil. And he knows your name. He's got your address. He knows where you live. He knows your internet history. He knows what you're thinking. He, roars, he prowls around like a roaring lion, and he knows how to wield shame and guilt and death and your sins against you in the war that we fight and that we wage in the wilderness. And y'all, being an obstruction to you, to God's people in the wilderness, is not like a side gig for him. It's not something that he does on a part-time basis. It's his full-time job, and he's a workaholic. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, that we don't wrestle. That is, we don't wage war. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a TV show that I think really gets at this. Um, Stranger Things on Netflix, um, huge parental advisory here, okay? This is not necessarily a recommendation, okay? Watch at your own risk. But this TV show gets it. Um, it's a, Stranger Things is about this, you know, uh, peaceful, quiet, rustic town uh, in Indiana somewhere, Hawkins, Indiana, back in the, back in the 1980s. And, and these teenagers somehow stumble over and discover this this dark, twisted, like alternate reality kind of thing that exists underneath the surface of Hawkins, Indiana. Nobody else knows that it's there, but they discover this portal to it, and it, it is this dark, twisted, malicious, evil version of reality 
that's trying to make its way up into Hawkins, Indiana. It wants to devour and destroy and take over and kill. And the children are, are the teenagers are fighting against it the whole time in this TV show. But it's, it's restless and it's evil and it's dark and it's twisted. And you don't come to peace terms with it. And the authors of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, portray the enemy that we engage on this side of heaven in the wilderness like that. That's who we engage in, in the war. And it's important to keep that in mind, that he's our enemy, that Satan, that the devil wages your shame and your guilt against you like a sword. Death is one of his greatest weapons. Now, the gospel has turned Satan's greatest weapon into the entrance into the promised land for the believer. That's the good news. But death still hurts, and it destroys, and it tears apart, and it is wielded by Satan himself, the one who is deeply committed to keeping you from making any progress towards heaven or from looking anything like the king of heaven. And it's good to keep that in mind because Satan would, first of all, love to convince you that there's no war at all, that he's off somewhere else doing something else, interested in somebody else, He's out there somewhere not paying too much attention to you. He would love, first of all, to convince you of that. I think he would also love to turn our attention elsewhere. Our, our world, our culture, even our churches are so divided and polarized these days that it can be really easy to be convinced that maybe the real enemy is someone else or something else, some other group, some other person, you know, the liberals, the progressives the conservatives, the Russians, the Trumpers, whoever, wherever you are on that spectrum, it can be easy to buy into thinking that they're the real bad guys. But the scriptures want to take us and correct that perspective. And like Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against a dark, restless, ancient evil that you and I are absolutely no match for. And he doesn't want you one inch closer to heaven. And he doesn't want you sanctified one degree more into the image of the king of heaven. That's who we're up against. That's who we engage in the war. I'm so glad there's more points to this sermon. Um, because that can be hard to hear and, and maybe scary and intimidating. But we need to see, first of all, if, if that's who we engage in the war... How do we engage then in the war? How do we fight? How do we wrestle? What, does, what do we learn from this passage about how we engage war in war in the wilderness? Well, watch how Moses and Joshua engage here. In verse 9, Moses calls Joshua, and it's the first time that we've met Joshua so far in the story, and he's obviously going to play a bigger role later on. Moses calls Joshua, and he says, okay, here's the strategy for how we're going to engage the Amalekites here. And verse 9, is, it probably starts off the way that Joshua was expecting it to. Moses says, I want you to choose men and go out and fight. I bet Joshua saw that much coming. But I would have loved to have seen Joshua's face when he heard Moses say, you go that way and I'll go this way. You take men and go fight. I'm going to go sit up on that hill and hold a stick up in the air. I just wonder if Joshua thought, I'm, I think I'm getting the short end of the stick here, but Moses says, you go fight, 
I'm going to take the staff of the Lord with me. Um, and we don't, know, we don't know what Joshua was thinking, but he obeys. And when the battle starts, um, eventually this, this interesting pattern starts to develop. And we don't know how quickly this pattern starts to develop or how quickly they noticed it. But verse 11 says, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, y'all, let's be honest. This is a little strange. If you've grown up with the Bible in the Old Testament, maybe you're used to this story. But either way, like, this is one of those episodes in the, in the Bible where we just think, like, God, why did you have to make this complicated? Right? Like, why couldn't you have just let them win? Right? Like, why does God connect the fate of Israel's army with the location in the air of Moses' staff that he's holding? It's because he wants to teach them, and he wants to teach us how to engage in the struggles that we will inevitably encounter when we're in the wilderness. He wants to teach us how to engage with the enemy that wants to keep you from making any progress towards heaven. Watch what happens. When Moses is holding the staff up in the air, when his hands are up, what's he doing? He's interceding. He's praying. Hands held up in the air was the universal sign in Old and New Testament uh, Israelite life for hands lifted up to God in prayer. He's holding the staff up, but notice that the writer is more interested in where his hands are. He's, he's praying. He's, he's visibly communicating to God and to God's people, we need help. We can't do this on our own. Our only hope is in God. His raised hands it was a posture of dependence. It was a posture of reliance on God. It symbolized his recognition of their helplessness and their need. God was or Moses was communicating to God and to God's people their utter helplessness and weakness. Raising his staff indicated to God and to the people their profound awareness of their need and their absolute dependence on God's strength to win the battle. So think about it like this. I want you to imagine a huge lake, a huge lake full of water, okay? Maybe it was a river that's been dammed up, and there's a huge lake with one big giant dam on one side that's containing all the water in it. And the dam has a gate um, on the side of it that controls the amount of water that can be let out of of the dam, okay? And so the gate can be raised or lowered. And the higher the gate is, the more water can come through. And the lower the gate gets, obviously, the, the less amount of water comes through. Got the imagery? All right, now take it a little bit further. I want you to imagine that the, that the water that's in that lake is the reservoir of God's strength and infinite power and wisdom and resources, and might, and mercy, and grace to help in time of need. And I want you to imagine that that gate that raises or lowers um, is your awareness that you need it. And the higher the gate is raised, meaning the more that, the more that you're aware of your need and weakness, the more God's power and strength is unleashed into your circumstance and into your weakness to meet you in your need. That's what's going on here. That's the, that's the dynamic. What, 
So, so staff up means, God, we need you. We can't do this and we need your help. Staff down then means, God, we'll take it from here. I think we're doing okay now. Thanks for the shove. Thanks for the, thanks for the lift. I'll take it from here is what staff down means. Now, I just wonder, though, when did Moses first lower his staff? We're not told. But presumably, it wasn't when he got tired for the first time, okay? It's likely that they reached a point in the battle where Moses thought, all right, this looks like it's going great. It's the fourth quarter. We're up by 35. There's two minutes left. We can send in the third string. (laughs) Like, let's shut it down. Um, Let's get out of here. This thing's over. And Moses lowered his hands, communicating to God and to God's people that they're operating on their own strength now. That they're operating now on their own resources, on their own power, on their own ingenuity, and they immediately started to get hammered. Let me ask you a question. This last week, how, how much of your week did you spend with your hands up in the air? Now, I don't literally mean your hands up in the air. I mean the posture of your heart. I mean your the posture, the way that you lived before God and in this world, did you live with your hands up in the air out of a deep, conscious awareness of your weakness and a profound dependence on God's mercy and strength? Our hands are either going to be down or they're going to be up. You're either going to be recognizing and living out of that recognition of your weakness and your dependence on God or you're going to be living out of your recognition of your own resources, of your own power and strength. I'm afraid that for so many of us, the natural default posture of our hearts is to have our hands lowered. It just comes so easy. It just comes so naturally to think that we're okay. I've got this. And I can engage in the struggles of the wilderness and the the spiritual warfare on my own. I can beat this temptation. I know it clobbered me last night, but I think I can do it. I can, get, I can do better next time. I know that this struggle with this particular sin, with pride or lust or dishonesty, I know that it's, it's, I know it's wrecking my life right now, but if I just dig down deep, I can do it. That's having your hands lowered. It's the natural posture of our hearts to believe that we're independent, self-sustaining, self-reliant. Notice, it's the resting position for Moses. He doesn't need help lowering his hands, does he? He needed a lot of help keeping them raised. What did you pray for this last week? That's an interesting question, but you know what else you need to think about? What did you not pray for? What isn't on your prayer list? What do you feel like you can handle just fine? God shows us and he shows shows Israel and he shows us that we engage in the warfare in the wilderness by utterly relying on God's strength and by staying open and honest about our weaknesses. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, that unholy trinity that that Christian writers and thinkers have, have talked about for a long time. The world, the flesh, and the devil We struggle with them by remaining in a posture of reliant helplessness and honest dependence 
before the throne of God. Notice it's, it's, a, really, it's, it's, it's a really hard to translate verse in, in Hebrew, but verse 16 says, I, th- I think a good way to translate it is a, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Moses is saying there that when my hands were raised, holding the staff of God, when the gate was open and I was letting God's power and grace rush into my, into my helplessness, into my circumstances, when my hands were raised, what I was really doing was grabbing hold of the throne of God, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. He's saying when my hands were raised, I was really grabbing hold of the throne. He's saying, y'all, what Paul would say so many, so many years later when he was writing to the, to the church in Corinth when he says, when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. <laughs> when my hands are up, when my hands are empty and I'm living out of a deep, profound, conscious awareness of my inability, that's when I'm actually accessing all of the resources that God gives to me for free. And you remember when Paul is writing to the, to the Ephesian church just after the passage where he says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And he talks about the armor of God, language that you may be familiar with. Y'all, you know, you don't get the armor of God when you become a Christian. It's not like you get the armor of God strapped on one time and it just stays there. He's talking about the armor of God that needs to be strapped on like five or six times a day, like all the time, like you're living out of your deep conscious awareness that without it, you're exposed and vulnerable and weak. So he says, strap on the armor of God that you may be able to stand firm. It says, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then notice how he finishes this this little section here. It's as if he says, in other words, or to sum it all up, praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. A lifestyle, a posture of constant prayer. Now you may hear that and think, I can't do that. I can't focus on two things at once. I don't know what, that, maybe that sounds boring to you to just like be praying all day long, you know? Or maybe it sounds like I'm not spiritual enough. I can't do that. I can't focus on my work and be praying at the same time. I, I can't do this and that at the same time. But he's not, what he's saying is living a, a constant, living with a constant awareness that you are before the face of God and that you are helpless on your own and that you need everything that God has to give to you all the time. And sometimes you're putting that into words, but you're constantly living out of that reality. That's what it means to be praying at all times. Um, now, there's something else I want you to see here, though, something else about how we engage in the, in, in the warfare. We don't do it alone. Notice that Moses takes two people up on the hill with him. And it's interesting. We're not told if that was God's idea or if it was Moses' idea to take Aaron and her with him. But either way, God knew that Moses would reach a point where he couldn't go on any further, where his own strength would be depleted. And I wonder what would have happened if Moses had tried to power through on his own. 
when he reaches that place where he can't hold up the staff anymore? What if Moses had not had the humility to ask for help in broad daylight, in front of everybody, to be held up by other people? Israel wouldn't have made it. Here's Moses out in broad daylight in front of everyone with his own weakness being exposed for the world to see. And he says, I need help. I can't do the one thing that I came up here to do. And don't you know that that had to be, that that had to be a hard thing for Moses? But he says, if I don't get help, we're not going to make it. And y'all, that's how we, that's how we, Engage in warfare in the wilderness. I want to suggest to you that this picture of Moses here, weary, tired, and utterly dependent on God and being honest about his inability to do the one thing that, he, that he's trying to do and being held up himself while he's holding up the staff, y'all, that picture is a picture of the victorious Christian life. God wants nothing more for you than that. Like, that's what the Christian life looks like. It doesn't look like being a a spiritual Chuck Norris. It doesn't look like being some kind of Christian John Wayne who's bulletproof and resilient and strong and invincible and always has the answers and can do everything. It looks like living out of a profound and deep awareness of your own inability and living out of your own awareness of God's overflowing mercy and grace and sufficiency to meet you in your needs. And it looks like living in the presence of others that you can be honest with about your weakness. That you can invite them into your weakness, even in front of everybody, and say, I can't do this on my own. And they come in and they say, I know. I'm here. I will hold you up. And your weakness doesn't scare me off. I've got the same ones. That's how we engage in the warfare. We've seen, first of all, who we engage. We've looked, secondly, at how we engage. Thirdly, who will end it? Who will end this war? Is this warfare meant to be a perpetual, constant, never-ending kind of struggle for the believer on this side of heaven? Well, God says, or in verse 14, God says, I want you to write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Notice he's saying here, this is my fight. This is my war. Because I'm your God and because you are my people, this is my fight. And one day I'm going to end it. One day I will blot the name of your enemy from the, from the history books. Just, just trust me and keep fighting and keep pressing on. God wants his people then and he wants his, his people now to know that he fights for them. And that because he fights for them, the victory is certain and the battle is certain. It's not in question. And you know, that really makes a difference, doesn't it, in how you fight, in how you struggle in how you engage in the warfare. Knowing how the battle's going to end before it's done changes the way that you fight in the midst of it. Um, Because notice that that God says specifically, I want Joshua to know this. Moses, you make sure that you rub this in Joshua's face and in his heart. Make sure he hears this. 
Um, isn't that interesting? Because God knows that one day soon, Joshua is going to be one of those men that goes into the land of Canaan and spies it out. And everybody else except for Caleb comes back scared. Um, because you know who they saw there? The Amalekites. They were still, they were one of the many ites that were still there in the promised land. But Joshua comes back and he says, let's roll. We've got this. God promised that, that this was his fight. They're his enemies and that we're going to be victorious. He promised it. Let's do it. But everybody else, you remember, they back away in fear and in cowardice because they didn't trust the promises of God and they didn't believe that God was going to be the one that would fight their battles. It's because he believed in God's promise that God would fight for them in the future that changed the way that he fought in the present. What about you and me this morning? Do we engage the world and the flesh and the devil with that kind of rock-solid confidence and hope and humble, realistic resiliency, trusting that we are engaging in an enemy that one day will be no more? Your own sin, the sin that you struggle with and that may be clobbering you right now, the sin that you hate, the temptation that you hate, that you don't want to struggle with anymore, but you keep struggling with it. Sin itself, death itself, shame and guilt. Do you engage those enemies knowing that one day you will not anymore? Because God has promised to end the war. Paul writes this to the Roman Christians in Romans 16. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And all that Paul is doing there is simply reminding them of the oldest promise in the Bible, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. He's reminding them how the warfare is going to end, how the battle will be won. He's reminding them of how it's going to end in the future because that makes all the difference in how you engage in the present. And brothers and sisters, it would be enough for us right now if we just had God's promises. It would be enough for us right now if we just had that promise from God that one day he will defeat our enemies and make all things new. But you have more than that. You have a greater Joshua who has come and fought for you and still fights for you. Jesus is the greater Joshua who has already defeated your sin on the cross and who has crushed the head of the serpent by being crushed in your place. Jesus is the greater Joshua who fights for you and who has won for you and will one day bring you home. And Jesus is the greater Moses who even right now lives to intercede for you. Even as you lift up your hands in weakness to the throne of heaven, you grab hold of the, of the throne of Jesus himself. He's the one sitting there and he knows you and he loves you. And he never gets tired or weary of interceding for you. Right now, your name is on his lips and written on his heart. He is interceding for you as the one who is greater than Moses. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? May we keep our eyes fixed on him and may he give us the grace to keep our hands raised grabbing hold of his throne as we follow him through the wilderness and on towards the promised land. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we pray that, that as we struggle, as we fight, that you would be the one that would fight our battles. We pray that by your Spirit, O oh God, you would give us the kind of gospel-saturated humility that allows us to own our own weakness and dependence. And Lord, let us find the deepest kind of joy by being those who are carried all the way home by the, by the shepherd who knows us and loves us, who is strong, mighty, and tender, and gentle. Oh Lord, may the joy of your salvation fill our hearts and continue to equip us to follow you in the wilderness as you lead us home. In your name we pray. Amen.